Welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you advice and insights for your writing. I'm Andy Chamberlain, I'm a writer and creative writing coach, and in each episode, we'll be exploring an aspect of the craft together. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you can also find out about the Creative Writers Tool Belt Handbook, which takes all the best advice and insights from the early episodes of the podcast and distills them into one volume. I hope this podcast is helpful to you on your writing journey. If you do find it useful, please do subscribe and consider leaving a review as well wherever you downloaded it. So thank you for joining me and here's this episode. Hello and welcome to episode 167 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. My guest for this episode is the writer, journalist and blogger, Brian Collins. Brian has written for Forbes, The Huffington Post and Fast Company. He's published 16 books on creativity, non-fiction and being a productive writer. Brian loves stories and is especially interested in how the power of story can be applied to non-fiction work. In this episode, we talk about how telling a story is much more powerful than just talking about features when you want to persuade somebody to buy a product or indeed a concept. We also talk about how you can build your authority as a writer and the power of owning your own work and your own space online. We also have a discussion about some of the tools that we writers can use to improve our productivity and help us present our work to the world. Brian and I had a good chat that helped me to think about how and where I can use stories in my work and what tools and services are out there to help me do this. I hope you find it useful to listen to our conversation. Here it is. Okay, Brian, welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. It's great to have you as our guest today. Thanks for having me on, Andy. It's great to be here. Perhaps we can start by you spending a moment just telling us a little bit about your background, uh, some of the things you've done in life and, and how you've got to where you're do- what you're doing now. Sure. So I spent my 20s trying to build a career as a journalist. Didn't really work out because I spent more time in college going out and getting drunk and uh, not learning how to get a writing job. Uh, so I drifted in and out of uh, some low-paid freelance writing gigs um, and I eventually gave up on journalism because I had kids and it just got too hard to pay the bills. But I still wanted to do something creative. So I took a series of creative writing classes and I experimented with writing literary Irish fiction to write the big great Irish novel. <laughs> uh, that didn't work either. <laughs> but I, I uh, discovered that uh, you know, there are other ways for writers to to make a living and that led me towards uh, blogging and publishing content online um, and I gradually found a job on a content marketing team and at, at the same time I set up my own uh, website which is a site for writers and I started publishing articles on that site and then over the years what started out as a kind of a creative side project turned into a uh, into a business um, and along the way I experimented with courses and books as sure. well. so that's kind okay. of okay 120 second overview. That's perfect. And I want to get into this now by us tackling um, the the myth, and I will call it a myth, that nonfiction writing can't be about stories, that there's no story content at all in nonfiction writing. Now, I don't believe that, and I don't think you believe that. But I wonder if you could tell us from your perspective about how people who are listening to this who write nonfiction can use the techniques and craft of story writing in their work. Yeah, about two years ago, I took a course by David Sedaris, 
and it's all about how he writes nonfiction. Uh, he writes really, really colourful essays. One of the things I was struck by in the course was how he just journals every day. And this was something I was doing at the time already. But I just write, wrote, was writing journal entries about what happened yesterday. But David Zadaris writes up his journal entries like pieces of fiction. So Brian said, da, 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 da. And he puts in character descriptions and locations and scenes uh, and writes it up almost like a story. Uh, and then when time comes to write his essay, he'll take the stories and extract them and uh, turn them into anecdotes for his, his books. So I said, I'm going to try that for, for the, the next book that I'm going to write. So I wrote a memoir about becoming a dad unexpectedly during the lockdown. Uh, and rather than writing a typical self-help parenting book, I went through all my old journal entries for the past mm. few years. And I pulled out parenting stories uh, and anecdotes and rewrote them and put them into the book. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big believer that nonfiction is as much creative as fiction. And why do you think it is that stories are so attractive? Well, well-told stories, whether you're doing writing a novel or you're maybe your work is journalist or you write non-fiction narrative non-fiction people love stories and why is this do you think yeah i guess if we didn't love stories we would all just use a service like blinkist uh, not a criticism of blinkist but we just take the bullet point summary and we'd say we've read the book uh, <laughs> but st- stories are great because they get us to connect emotionally with the idea behind the the non-fiction book uh, and they get us to also remember it in a way that a bullet point summary can't um and a couple of years ago i was, I was lucky enough to take a story writing conference by robert mckee and uh, he, he specializes yeah. in screenwriting uh, but at the time he was launching a story writing conf- uh, workshop for business writers and he basically explained that if, if you're trying to sell any product or service uh, i got this course to work by the way if you're, if you're trying to sell any product or service <laughs> you need to tell a story that your audience can resonate with because they're not just going to buy because you have some fantastic features in your product it needs to connect yeah. emotions yeah. um so so stories are how we relate to each other and stories are how we we make decisions uh, uh and how we make sense of the world and that applies to writing just as much as it applies to other areas of life so in the broadest sense of the word sell stories sell as in they capture interest and they they enthrall us and they absorb us i mean are there are there one or two tips that you can give to writers who are thinking yeah i'd love to incorporate some story into my work but i really don't know how i could do it i know you've touched on this a little bit maybe with your journal thing but is there some other stuff you can share with us around that yeah it's hard to put stories into your work when you haven't done it i know i took when i took that course it was like right i'm putting stories into everything <laughs> but what <laughs> i found was it's actually quite hard to find relevant stories that you can insert in your articles um so my biggest piece of advice would be to, with the journaling habit, um, to just get into the habit of writing up short stories every day about things that have happened to you or conversations you've had or experiences you've went through. It doesn't need to be 2,000 words. No. You could write a 300-word entry in an app like day one in the morning before you go on with your day. Put in a few lines of dialogue. Put in an interesting anecdote. Because it's amazing how much you forget. I know the day one is the journaling app I use, and it surfaces entries from a few years ago. Um, when it surfaces all entries, sometimes I'm horrified. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes like you know, I'm surprised that sometimes I can't believe uh, uh, what what happened. And I'll ask myself, can I use this story in an article I'm working on? Yeah, in, yeah. In a book chapter. And the other thing is, I mean, you don't need to use your personal stories. You can also use stories that you read in other books. 
So if you find an interesting story in another book, try and summarize that in your own words in your in your research system or whatever system you mm. use, rather than just clipping it into Evernote. If you summarize it in your own words in a few lines, you're more likely to recall it. And then when you start your next non-fiction piece, although I guess you could use it for fiction too, you might think of that story and you could put yeah. up that summary and then flesh it out and expand it. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like there's something around using the, the human elements of a character in, in the people you may have met, something around anecdotes as well, and, and really finding the human interest in the, the non-fiction piece that you're writing and then using that. Yeah, a lot of good non-fiction follows some of the same storytelling principles as fiction. You might not necessarily have a traditional hero's journey, but there will be a narrative arc. Mm. Uh, there's an inciting incident. There's a you know, a call to change. Um, and then you or the protagonist or whoever you're writing, whatever you're writing about goes through some sort of change. And at the end, uh, everything, you know, to see the world differently. Mm. Copywriters use this technique all the time in their sales letters and sales yeah. pages. Um, email copywriters use it in their e- email funnels and essayists use it too. So one of the things that I noticed on your website that I want to just talk to you about briefly as well is this concept of building authority as a writer. So can you tell us a little bit about that? How how might we build our authority as writers as we as our careers develop? Yeah, it's a good question. So when I was working as a journalist during the time of the recession or the crash in 2008, 2009, because I was freelance journalists were the first to be to be asked to leave because there's no contracts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you know the fence, you know come back. And uh, what I learned the hard way is it's better to build something that you own and a part of the internet where you can connect directly uh, with your audience. So if you want to build authority online today, um, don't necessarily need to go out and say you want to become an influencer, but rather than just working as a freelance writer, is there a way that you can build a place on the internet where your clients can find you? Um, yeah. So that could be a podcast that you control. Um, it could potentially be your YouTube channel. Uh, it could be your website where you're publishing articles that are attracting traffic because you've optimized them for search. And it could be your email list where you're kind of nurturing relationships with your ideal audience. Mm. Um, mm. I was talking to uh, somebody who's a well-known medium writer recently, um, and he was saying that uh, he, he used to rely on medium to distribute his articles, but now he prefers to send his people to his website Mm. else uh the articles published in his own site instead because what he found was people were getting distracted and clicking and other things on medium whereas when he when he owned that relationship through email uh he was able to I suppose earn more and spend more time building his own business rather than mediums so there's something there i guess around not hiring ourselves out too much online owning our own website not doing necessarily all these things but own your own website own your own mailing list own your own blog own your own space and and build and control your own space yeah so if you think of the uh like channels like medium or youtube or twitter as distribution channels uh same on amazon but um at the end of the day they can all change the rules and you yeah start yeah they can for um distribution so like a couple of years ago you could self-publish a book on amazon now it's a, you can still self-publish a book, but you also need to spend a good bit of money on ads if you want anybody to read yeah. it. Whereas if you have an email list, you can email people and say, buy the book directly from my store or buy on Amazon. So you can do both. Sure. And one of the things also that you talk about on your website is getting paid to write. So yeah, I like loads of loads of struggling authors would ask that question. How 
how can I get paid to write? Because it's so difficult to earn money. It seems to get more difficult to earn money as a writer as time goes by, even though there are more opportunities. Are there one or two real key tips for things that writers need to think about that actually will help them in this struggle to get some income? Oh, yeah, loads, loads. Uh, I, well, I guess the, the biggest piece of advice is that you work on your craft every day. So that's writing your stories or your articles or your yeah, work. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And then if you work on your uh, business every day, so that's doing something um, that will help you find more clients or uh, sell more of your products or services. But in terms of the specifics of actually getting paid to write, well, it depends what genre or niche you're in. But like for nonfiction, if you've written a series of articles, they've done well. Could you repurpose the articles and re-edit them and publish them as a book? Hmm. Uh, and then could you turn that book into an audio book? And then if that does well, could you potentially create an online course related to some of the ideas in the nonfiction book? Similarly, if you're good at getting traffic for your clients, could you get traffic for yourself? And then when you get traffic for yourself, you, you can monetize through display advertising or through selling your own products or services. Uh, another good option is uh, affiliate marketing. So if there's a if there's a particular tool you use in your writing business, could you talk about that to your audience and how it's helped you? Uh, and then you may potentially earn a commission if your audience decides to buy it. Mm. Um, mm. And the great thing about those strategies is they may seem peripheral to writing, but when I started earning you know money from from some of those activities, I was able to invest in hiring a better editor, hiring a better book cover designer. Yes. Yes. Costing. Um, yeah. so it can help you improve the quality of, of whatever it is you're working on as well yeah yeah so it does seem like i mean to come back to something you said earlier actually anyone can publish a book now online anyone and it won't and in a way it costs nothing but actually to publish well publish something well produce it well good content good cover good everything that does take some investment doesn't it yeah it's a ballpark uh minimum thousand dollars if you factor in an editor, proofreader, and a yeah. friendly book cover designer. You can spend quite a bit more. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You can spend thousands of dollars. <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, how much return are you going to make on, on the book? I guess it comes yeah. down to. And I, it's also an investment in your craft. I mean, I, I've worked with editors who point out mistakes in the book, and that's helped me with subsequent books because mm. uh, it's kind of like a secondary benefit of getting feedback about whatever I'm working on. Mm. I just want to pick up very briefly with you about editing there, because it's one of those things where when you come to it to start with, you think, oh, I'll get an editor. And then when you look into it, you find that there's not one, but two, three, four, five types of editor. There's loads of types of editing. And if you've got your thousand pound budget, the thousand dollar budget that you just talked about, where should we commit that money in terms of editing, do you think? I uh, well if you do, first thing is if you don't have the money uh wait until you do before you press publish <laughs> when i self-published my first book years ago i thought because i had been a journalist i could edit it myself and that was a mistake i got emails from readers uh saying brian there's a typo on page five and uh, it took me a while to, to to fix all the mistakes and eventually i hired an editor um but it was, it was just a bit stressful yeah so, so these days if you're on a budget there's a couple of editors you can work with. So there's a developmental editor uh, and they'll look at your manuscripts or the table of contents as a whole. And they're kind of like an architect and they'll, you know, tell you that, you know, you need a, this type of story in act three. Uh, act one is too long. The key idea yeah. isn't clear in act two, but they're not going to go in and fix the typos on page five 
uh, or rewrite your sentences, but they'll give you feedback on the overall structure of your mm. book. That's really helpful. Mm. Uh, and you can potentially do that yourself, depending on how many books you've written. So once you've worked with the developmental editor or you have a second or third draft that, that you're reasonably happy with, uh, then you need a copy editor, potentially, depending on, on your writing skills and what they or a line editor. And what they will do is they go in and read the individual uh, chapters and rewrite them. So change passive voice, active voice, tell mm. you the sentences are too long, um, tell you the inconsistent subheads, the actual mechanics of polishing your manuscript. Um, and just to confuse things, a developmental editor will sometimes do line editing. So, <laughs> so, so, it, it, so that's something to bear in mind before you commission them. Um, so a developmental editor and a line editor that will probably be the bulk of your uh, self-publishing budget. Once you've done that, then the next step is to get a proofreader. And you may be thinking, well, why do I need a proofreader? I've just hired an editor. Um, but unfortunately, when you get your manuscript back, you're going to make changes. And chances are you've introduced a few typos. And also, uh, chances are, because they're a line editor, they will have introduced some mistakes. So you still need somebody who's never looked at your book draft to go back and approach it with fresh eyes and fix the time. Mm, mm. So that'll take you up to about $800. I'm assuming it's a 50,000 word manuscript here. So these are back of the mats or back of sure. the figures. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then you can get a book cover for $200. So so that should get you on Amazon for about $1,000. Easy to spend your $1,000, isn't it, really? It is. On, on good stuff. Very easy. Um, and I guess a second pair of eyes is always valuable, isn't it? I, I, even if you even if you think, oh, I can do this, I know exactly what I'm doing, but actually having that second pair of eyes on, on your stuff is good. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something you said around if you write it, if you wrote a series of articles which were well received, you might be able to turn them into a book. That made me think, well, actually, there's a thing around owning your own IP, your own intellectual property in that, um, and being able to then work with your own material. I, I, I wonder if you want to sort of say something around that and, and the importance of that. Yeah, well, I guess it depends on uh, the types of articles you've written. So I guess if you've ghostwritten for another client, you know, you're probably not going to be able to turn those sure. articles into a book. But if you've written them on a Medium or your website, um, or you've got a guest posted on other people's websites and you've got some engagement, you can take the ideas from the articles and expand on individual ideas as chapters. So it's not that you're copying the article and calling it. No, no, no. It's more that you're using the best articles as kind of an outline for, for a bigger book. And it's interesting you bring up intellectual copyright. So uh, I'm not an expert in it, but I've been ripped off a few times. <laughs> really? Yeah, I found wow. my books available for free on file sharing websites and uh, some of my articles from the site have been plagiarized by other uh, content creators or so-called content creators. <laughs> content stealers. Yeah, content yeah. stealers. Yeah, so it's a bit stressful, but um, I kind of took it as a bit flattering that somebody would, would steal content and try and pass it off as their own. I still issue, you know, a DMCA takedown request, so it will be taken offline. Mm, um, mm. But, I, but I've assumed that, mm. you know, at some point somebody will rip off some of your work and pass it off as their own, but at least your, your work is getting out into the world. Yeah. I mean, this is a reality for pretty much any writer these days who, who, who puts stuff online, is that somebody's going to take it and pass it off as their own or, or just... I know like ebooks, people, there are organizations that just take ebooks and sell them, don't they? And you know, you, you know, the, the author that isn't going to see any benefit from that. One of the things 
that was mentioned um, in the notes that I got when I was going to talk to you. I don't even know I'm going to pronounce this correctly. It was talking about the Zettelkasten method. The Zettelkasten method. Yeah, yeah I'm glad. Thank you. So Zettelkasten, is that is that the right pronunciation for it? Zettelkasten. Uh, as far as I know, it is. <laughs> Somebody who's listening is from Germany. Might, uh, can't well, can't if you that's good enough for me if you're happy with it. So, yeah, Brian, tell us about the Zettelkasten method then and and how we can use that and apply that. Yeah, the, the Zettelkasten method, uh, it's also known as a slip box. It's basically a system for nonfiction research, and it's based on a writing system that the German writer Nicholas Luhmann had in the 50s and 60s. And he wrote uh, several dozen books alongside more scientific papers than I was able to count. And the idea is that you, you know, you read something, you come across an interesting piece of research and you write that idea down on an index card and you summarize the idea in your own words. And then potentially below your own summary, you would have the resource material or the quote or the extract. Uh, And then below that, you would have the, the place where you could go and find the original source material. So rather than just saving articles into Evernote, you're summarizing in your own words and capturing it all in one place. The next part of the system involves interlinking your notes. Now he used a numbering system. These days you can you can just use software and hyperlinks. Mm-hmm. The idea is that you're building an ongoing conversation on a topic. Um, so if I went into my uh, Zettel Haston software, I use day one, but the software is not really important. I could type in something like decision-making and I could see all of the notes I've taken about decision-making mm. from various books. So if I did decide to write an article about decision-making, I'd have like notes from all the different sources mm. and I'd have them summarized in my own words. And I'd also have the original source to go, to go back and check them. Um, and I found this is really helpful for nonfiction because it's impossible to remember all of the ideas that, that you're reading books. So when you have a system for your research that you actually use, it can help you, you know, get over that first draft much quicker. Um, and it must have worked because he, he wrote 50 or 60 books. So, so I've been using it for the past two years. It's been quite, quite good. Yeah. So, so it's working for you then at the, uh, using, using the software that you've got. Um, I do want to ask you about software and applications as well. So um, I know that you take an interest in a broad range of applications that writers might use. So can you tell us about maybe two, three, could be four, whatever, of the, the the software tools that you think a writer should seriously consider using? Yeah, I'm a, I've always been a bit nerdy about software. So I, I, I like the latest gadgets. Uh, mm. Before I get into it, the <laughs> my takeaway is that the process is more important than any piece of software. So doesn't, at the end okay. of the day, of writing, that, that's more important. Uh, but the ones I use at the moment are uh, Ulysses, which is a markdown editor and i use that for writing and editing my own articles and um, basically because it supports markdown i can uh, pre-format it for the web and then publish it on a website by pressing a button can you just define the term markdown for us for those for people who don't know what that might mean um, markdown is like a simple syntax language whereby you can add headings and bold and italics and hyperlinks using hashtags, stars, and asterisks. Um, so it saves a lot of time when it comes to format and article mm. for publication. Okay. Um, and Markdown also removes any of the issues you might have where you're playing around with fonts uh, or line spacing um, in a traditional writing app like Word. It's the kind of thing that it, it's worth going to the official Markdown website to look at their 
uh, syntax to see how it works in practice. But if you write for the web, Markdown is word learning. It only yeah. takes a few minutes and it'll change how you write. Um, so I use Ulysses for, for writing articles and um, for managing all the art, my own articles. Um, I did use IA Writer, but I, I like Ulysses because it has a document library attached to it. So it combines all of the text files on my computer into one place and I can interact with them and publish them on, on any website. So that's quite a good writing app. For books, I, I've used Scrivener uh, for several books. I like Scrivener because it's great for managing long form projects. You can drag and drop chapters mm. around. You can create mm. virtual index cards. and it, manage, it seems to manage annotations and footnotes quite easily. Some people get put off by the learning curve in Scrivener. So there is an in, some interesting alternatives like Living Writer, which is a newer writing app worth checking out if you write fiction. And for laying out books, I use Vellum. So Vellum is Mac only, unfortunately, uh, although I gather there are workarounds, but um, it's quite easy to format a book with Vellum. So I'll export from Scrivener into Vellum and then prepare for publication in Vellum. For collaborating with other writers, uh, I use Google Docs quite a lot, simply because uh, the, note, the collaboration features are great. Um, you know, you can leave comments and you can easily share it. With yeah. Other people. Uh, they're the main ones I use day one for journaling, dedicated journaling app, and sometimes Apple Notes if I need to take notes. I've experimented with other apps over the years, but they're probably the ones I use the most at the moment. I, I also use Grammarly for grammar checking. I use the plagiarism checker. So that's how I found I was plagiarized. That's in Grammarly. Uh, and I also <laughs> use, sometimes use Copyscape as well. So, so Yeah. Okay. Um, just out of interest, you haven't come across Atticus, have you? Have you heard of Atticus? Have you... That's Dave Chesson's new app. Yeah, Dave Chesson's thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, know, if I don't look know. I think he's only launched it, so I haven't used it, but it's on my list. Right. I'm going to look at that at some point, just because I, I use Vellum. I've got a Mac and I use Vellum, and it's, I'm happy with it. But um, I'm intrigued by what he's up to with that. But anyway, that's that's a little aside. So we're coming towards the end of our conversation now, but I wondered if uh, you could just tell us, if, if people have listened to all this, they're a little bit intrigued by some of the things we've talked about, recommendations you've made or advice you've given how would people find out more about you and about the kind of um, services and things that you offer sure so my site is called become a writer today and i give advice about the craft of writing and i also have a podcast under the same name become a writer today so if you go to itunes you should find that um, if you visit the site i'll give you a free book of writing prompts and i'm also on twitter at brian b-r-y-a-n j collins Okay, and that's becomearitertoday.com, I think, that's that, that website, yeah. isn't it? Okay, great. Is there anything else you want to share with us, Brian, before we finish at all? Parting thought at all? doesn't have to be, can if you want. Uh, yeah, I guess if somebody's thinking of writing a book, uh, start today. If you write 300 words a day, you can produce a couple of thousand in a week, and that can turn into several thousand over the course of a few months, uh, and that's often enough to uh, call yourself an author. So little enough and be consistent is the way to get the thing done. That's the mantra I've, I've used right. over the years. <laughs> All right. Okay, Brian, thank you very much for your time. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Andy. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. You can find out more about the podcast at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you can also find details of the Creative Writers Toolbelt handbook, which takes all the best advice and insights from the early episodes of the podcast and distill them into one volume. I hope this episode has been useful to you on your writing journey. If it has, please do subscribe to the podcast 
and consider leaving a review as well wherever you downloaded it. Thank you for listening to this episode and goodbye.